Hello, and welcome to Green Deal Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Aaron Best. And I'm Ricarda Faber. We're pleased to join you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin. In this podcast series, we explore the ins and outs of the European Green Deal, the EU's flagship environmental initiative. So far in this series, we've talked about mobility, fashion, agriculture, climate change, plastics and finance. All of these have important environmental effects. But today, we're getting closer to nature, so to say, by talking about a proposal to help nature recover in the European Union where more than 80% of protected habitats are now in a bad or poor conservation status. In June 2022, the European Commission put forward the Nature Restoration Law, which aims to restore at least 20% of EU land and sea by 2030 and all ecosystems needing restoration by 2050. Under the proposal, every member state in the European Union will need to develop a national restoration plan. Today, we have two guests with us to help us better understand the state of nature in the European Union and the European Commission's proposal for a nature restoration law. Our first guest is Umberto Delgado Rosa, Director for Biodiversity at the European Commission. Our second guest is Sabine Lehmanns. Senior Biodiversity Policy Officer at WWF. Humberto and Sabine, welcome to Green Deal, Big Deal. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Umberto, let's uh, start with you. The challenge of climate change has really captured popular imagination and public debate in recent years. But now biodiversity is also coming to the fore. So could you explain for us why is it crucial that we protect nature, ecosystems and species? Okay, to put it very simply, we need to protect nature because we are strictly dependent on services that nature provides to us. And we usually take them for granted. I mean, we don't really produce food. Nature produces food for us, mediated by farmers. We don't have factories to produce water for us or the air we breathe or the protection from floods that vegetation delivers to us, and indeed even the stable climate that humanity has benefited from for a long time is strictly dependent from a healthy nature. One can understand, let's say, the catastrophes of extreme weather events are somehow more visible to people. The forest fires, the floods, the heat waves and so forth, than other elements of consequences of nature loss. But if you just think, for instance, that some 80% of the crops from which we feed ourselves are dependent on pollinators, and that insects and other insect pollinators are declining a bit everywhere, you see immediately a big problem there. There's another reason now kicking in for more attention to nature, which is telling us that we are causing what can be called a great extinction crisis. But at the same time, science is telling us more clearly about the link between climate change and biodiversity loss. You know, there are these intergovernmental panels of scientists that advise governments both on climate change and on biodiversity and ecosystems to independent panels, where they are more and more speaking the same language 
that climate change affects nature, but at the same time, nature is needed in order to tackle climate change. And now, while we had a climate agreement for long, noticeably the Paris Agreement that everyone knows about climate change, we also have now a global deal for nature that was finalized in December 2022 and which is as meaningful in terms of quantification of targets for sustainable use, for protection, for restoration, and for linking with climate as we have in the Paris Agreement. So the political moment is different, and nature has kicked in as the next big thing together with climate change. And Sabine, I'd also like to turn the same question to you. Nature protection and recovery is really central to WWF's mission. And so... From your point of view, why is protecting biodiversity important? First of all, I would like to emphasize that it's important to protect biodiversity for its intrinsic value and its beauty. And I guess many of us have childhood memories of being in nature. Me, for instance, as a nine-year-old, I loved observing how tadpoles were evolving into little frogs in a pond near to our house. And this is really important for children everywhere. And we need to make sure that next generations can continue to have these experiences. But as Umberto already underlined, we should not only protect and restore nature for nature itself, it's also for us, for people, for society at large, that it is important. There are many examples that we can give of the economic benefits of protecting and restoring nature. I have one on the marine area. It might seem counterintuitive, but when fishing is limited or even prohibited in certain protected areas, we see that this is actually beneficial for fishing communities because they will have increased catches in the zones outside of the protected area because the fish stocks will recover. And this is really important and we should underline that even if restoring nature will bring costs, the costs will be much higher if we don't act and if we don't uh, restore nature. There's also more and more scientific evidence on how nature is beneficial for our mental and physical health. And probably many of us have experienced this during COVID crisis and the lockdown period we had. And this is also one of the big arguments why we need to bring nature back in Europe. Sabine, we've just talked a little bit about nature protection and Umberto has spoken about the wildfires. I'd like to know when people actually talk about nature degradation, what exactly do they mean by that? Well. Um, Unfortunately, the scale of nature deterioration is very big. Worldwide, we have one million species that are threatened with extinction and the health of the ecosystems on which we depend is deteriorating more rapidly than ever. And we also see this in Europe. I think you mentioned in the intro already that even the protected habitats and species that we protect under the Habitats Directive, the majority of them are not in good status. And so there's a lot of efforts that we need to do and a lot of efforts that need to be stepped up. 
And maybe to give a few concrete examples of nature degradation, when we look at the peatlands in Europe, for instance, we see that more than half of them are degraded by drainage and they are used for agriculture, for forestry or for peat extraction. And because of this, the EU is the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases from drained peatlands after Indonesia. And that's one of the reasons why we need to restore these peatlands. And we are happy to see that there are concrete targets in the proposal from the Commission to tackle this. Another concrete example maybe is the decline of migratory fish species like sturgeons, the European eel and the Atlantic salmon. They have seen massive population declines in the last part of the 20th century and restoring rivers to make them free-flowing again by removing barriers would also help to reverse this decline and is very important. And Umberto, what are your observations about the scale and distribution of the problem in the EU? I would say the following. I mean, in the EU, we do have policies to address many environmental issues and problems, but we suffer from the same, let's say, drivers of biodiversity loss that I identified as the main drivers at global scale. The first of which is land use change and sea change. The pattern under which we use the land and the sea has been done in such a way that reduces the quality of nature. The second is over-exploitation, and we do have cases of excessive exploitation of biological resources in an unsustainable past. If you just think, for instance, of the depleted fish stocks in the Mediterranean, to give an example. The third is climate change itself, which is impacting our nature and causing changes and some species to disappear and to move to elsewhere. The fourth is pollution of several kinds, and you can remember, for instance, the example of the Oder River last summer, which had quite an episode related to pollution. And the fifth is invasive alien species, of which we are well served, meaning those species that do not belong to our ecosystems and habitats that were introduced have no competitors and they can override other species and cause a lot of economic damage and other damage. We have a bit of this everywhere in Europe. But now two points. One is our protected habitats and species. One could expect, well, if they are protected, everything should be fine, right? Not quite so. Unfortunately, we have about 80% of habitat type assessments and about 60% of species assessments other than birds showing they are not in good condition. This does not mean there are no conservation measures. We have several good examples, but the rhythm of degradation has outpassed the efforts of conservation and restoration. And on the wider landscape, we know that we went a bit too far in some land use intensification approaches. For instance, this model of producing crops by further intensifying a monoculture with chemical inputs, it's reaching its limits. And in some areas in Europe, we went too far on an industry-driven forestry model that brings an even-aged monospecies approach that is less resilient. So we have many examples of degradation, both from the side of what should be protected and is not totally well protected, but also on the wider 
landscape and seascape, by the way, where we have degradation in the EU. So we're going to talk about the nature restoration law proposal in just a second. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the historical context. The problem of biodiversity loss has been going on for a while. And past EU efforts to address that have not been successful so far. So help our listeners understand why that is. What have we learned from these unsuccessful past efforts like the biodiversity strategy to 2020? Okay, let me try to put it this way. First, one thing we've learned is that having just nice intentions does not necessarily drive action. I mean this on two angles. First, voluntary approaches are a nice approach, of course, but often they are not enough. We have seen, for instance, voluntary targets on nature restoration did not really deliver enough in the EU. And we had a bit of this voluntary approach on nature restoration. That's why we will be discussing the nature restoration law today. We are now moving into bindingness. But the other element is humans seem to react well to targets. So when we have a quantified target, a goal that was set, politically agreed, and that we know how to monitor, to verify, to report, this usually drives action. Even if the target is not attained, it drives action. So what's the big difference, I would say? What we have in the biodiversity strategy for 2030, which, by the way, is the most ambitious the world has ever seen on biodiversity, and I say it proudly, it showed what we wanted to attain globally in this new deal for nature, that was agreed in Montreal in 2022. And especially we would need more quantified targets. And we have them in the biodiversity strategy. We have quantified targets for protected areas, quantified targets for nature restoration on several grounds, for reducing impacts, for instance, reducing 50% of the risk and use of pesticides until 2030, or reducing 50% of nutrient losses but until 2030, I think this element of quantification with a capacity to monitor and to verify is the new deal breaker that will help us. A further element, if I can still add, is, of course, resources. And we now have also much stronger provisions on funding, both notably from the EU funds. You know, we used to have in the past wave of EU funds there was already a climate target quantified. X percent of EU funds would need to be invested in climate. But nowadays, we still have a climate target, but we also have a biodiversity target. We should have at least 7.5% of EU funds as from 2024 going to biodiversity and at least 10% as from 2026. So Sabine, Umberto has given us an overview of some of the historical aspects there. Do you have anything you'd like to add to that from your perspective? Yes. Um, first of all, I couldn't agree more that we uh, learned from the past that voluntary targets are not working and are not sufficient to drive the change that we need. And it's really important to have legally binding restoration targets and that they are quantified in a way that can clearly be measured and monitored. The financing is also important. We have seen in the past that there has always been a big funding gap for nature conservation. And we know that the upcoming nature restoration action will need 
a lot of investments. So this is probably something that we will need to look at when the discussions of the next EU budgets are starting. And in relation to that, I would add maybe the policy coherence. And this is something that we feel is still lacking at the EU level. We need also to change the drivers of biodiversity loss. And we know that intensification of agriculture is one of these drivers. We really need to solve also the subsidies that are still going to intensive agriculture harming ecosystems if we want to make the big change. However, we agree with the Commission that the legal proposal on the nature restoration law with the legally binding targets is really a very important step and a very important milestone to make the change that we need. Umberto, let's dive in a little bit more about the proposal itself. You've already mentioned a couple of important elements. The nature restoration law is the first continent-wide comprehensive biodiversity law with binding targets for land and sea. What do you think are really its most important elements? Before the nature restoration law, let me just add one thought coming from what Sabine said, which is, of course, policy coherence is very important we, and uh, it's not fully achieved for sure. But I would also add that the European Green Deal as such is pretty much an integrative approach. I mean, it aims at bringing together all the avenues of policy towards the common goal of sustainability. But let me go then to the nature restoration law, the main elements. First of its kind in terms of bringing binding targets quantified and with a timeline for restoration. Although, and this helps me explain two kinds of targets. For one kind of targets, they kind of pre-existed as an obligation, but without a timeline. And I'm referring to protected habitats, protected species, for instance, under the birds and habitats directives. Well, the duty already is there to attain what we call favorable conservation status, and that amounts to restore. But there was no deadline. For that. So, part of the targets are on these protected habitats and species for which we now propose a certain percentage to be restored until 2030, another until 2040, and so forth. By the way, having restoration means having restoration measures in place because some habitats can take more than 10 or 20 years to be restored, others will react quicker. The second element is we have a different kind of targets, which is for the non-protected side of the spectrum, for instance, urban nature, more green space and tree canopy in our cities, or a target for pollinators, first reversing the decline and then having a restoration, or for agroecosystems, or for forest ecosystems, For the, here, the approach is different. What we suggest is for some indicators to have a positive trend until 2030 and beyond. This positive trend is to be defined by the member state. There's a lot of flexibility. But when we say, for instance, that farmland birds or forest birds or soil organic carbon in mineral soils or deadwood in forests should have a positive trend, an increasing trend, Well, these are indicators that are correlated with resilience in general, and that's very important for our food security, for instance, 
having more pollinators or better soil quality, but also resilience versus risks as droughts, forest fires and others. The climate element was very present in our proposal in what amounts to these um, overall targets. So on this, I would still add a couple of elements. Sabine referred to peatlands. Well, indeed, drain peatlands under agricultural use and other uses are the main source of emissions, and they don't amount to a lot of agriculture area in the EU. So we are proposing targets which make a lot of sense from a climate mitigation perspective, which is to restore drain peatlands with a lot of flexibility, again, for the member states to decide on the future nature restoration plans we propose they should do, how to get there. So basically, you see, we set the targets, we allow the how, when, and how to finance for the member states. This is a flexibility element within it. Maybe the only kind of target I did not refer, well, under the protected habitats and species, there's, of course, a marine element also there, but we also address targets to restore the natural connectivity of rivers by identifying and removing obsolete barriers, and we have a lot of obsolete barriers in European rivers. This is what I would say as a bird's eye view of the nature restoration law. Sabine, as you represent an environmental NGO, you've already mentioned you're in favor of the nature restoration law. But can you tell our listeners what has been the reaction of environmental NGOs like the WWF regarding the proposal? Yes, first of all, I would like to say that not only WWF, but also the other environmental NGOs, we are supporting the legal proposal for the nature restoration. We think it's a huge opportunity to bring nature back to Europe, benefiting biodiversity, climate and people. And it's the first time, as already mentioned, that we would have legally binding restoration targets for many important ecosystems across Europe. So it's really an important milestone. But of course, as NGOs, we always have points that we would like to see improved. Maybe a few more general ones is that we have proposals to strengthen the governance and accountability framework of the proposal. And this is mainly to ensure that all the EU member states will contribute fairly to the overarching objective of the nature restoration law, which is by 2030 to have restoration measures in place on at least 20% of the EU land and sea area. But this is not defined at member state level. So how to ensure that all the member states are contributing to this overarching EU level target and to make sure that they can also be held accountable if they are not doing their fair share. Then on the um, ecosystem targets themselves, which are below the overarching target, we would like to see an increased ambition level of those targets, mainly for a speedier implementation of the restoration action. Many of the targets have 
targets by 2030, 2040 and 2050. And we think that given the urgency of both the nature and the climate crisis, we should push the action forward and make sure that by 2040, the main bulk of restoration that is needed is implemented because indeed it takes time for ecosystems to restore themselves. So when the restoration measure is put in place by 2040, it will still take time to have the benefits. And if we want to be climate neutral, for instance, by 2050, we think we should speed up the implementation of the targets. It's really great that we have marine restoration targets for marine habitats, but we are a bit concerned that the common fisheries policy will make it difficult in practice to put restoration measures in place because this will always entail certain limitations and restrictions on fisheries. And this is not something that the member states can do unilaterally. It's arranged under the common fisheries policy that they need to agree with the other member states who have fishing rights in those areas. And we see that in practice, this is not working well. It takes a very long time to get these agreements. And so if this is not addressed in the nature restoration law without changing the common fisheries policy, but just saying that this needs to be taken care of, then we think it will in practice hinder marine restoration. And then maybe two other points that are important. We talked about barrier removal and the importance for migratory fish species. But we think in the legal proposal, this is the only one where we lack a bit a very clear quantified time-bound target for barrier removal. So this is something we would like to see improved. And the other one is on the peatland restoration. It's already said that it's very important both for biodiversity and for climate. But it's clear that if you want to restore a drained peatland, you need to rewet it. So in the legal proposal, there is made a difference between restoring and fully rewetting peatlands. And according to our view, you cannot restore a drained peatland if you don't rewet the peatland. And we would also like to see this expanded, not only looking at peatlands that are currently under agricultural use, but also looking at the peatlands that are under forest use, for instance. Umberto, Sabine just mentioned that this is still a legal proposal. And this is a nice opportunity for our listeners to learn a bit about the EU policy context and legislative process. Could you walk us now through the nature restoration law? and talk about that process then, what can we expect, by when, etc. Yes, absolutely. I'm pleased to do it because actually I do believe that the EU as a virtuous process in terms of checks and balances. You know, there are three main institutions around the EU, which is, well, the European Commission is one of them, the European Parliament and the European Council, which represents the member states. And only one of these institutions has the capacity or the duty and right to make proposals, and that's the European Commission. But it does not have the capacity to approve its own proposals. That's for the other two entities to do it. So at this stage, what has happened? Well, we have adopted the proposal from the Commission in June 2022, and we have submitted it to the other two 
organizations, what we call the co-legislators, the council and the parliament, which will have to agree on a common final text that will then become EU legislation. Both institutions, the European Council and the Parliament, are now examining the text in parallel and each of them will adopt their own position on what changes they would like to see in the Commission proposal. The Council is expected to have their position adopted at the June Environment Council and the Parliament is likely to vote in plenary on their position in July. If this runs as planned, this will mean that before the summer break, each co-legislator will have adopted its own negotiation mandate on the basis of which both institutions, with the help of the Commission, will work towards a final compromise text. That's what we call the trilogue meetings. And they are called trilogue because there are three components. It's the Council, it's the Parliament and the Commission as a helper in these uh, negotiations to facilitate an agreement. When an agreement is found, then it will need to be formally validated both by the Council and the Parliament before the legislation is finally definitely approved. And this is expected to happen before the end of spring 2024. This is the process and the timeline. Great. Thank you for that. And so, Sabine, as Umberto just mentioned, we are in the middle of that process as we speak. And I'd be interested to hear from you. What are some of the key debates that are taking place right now? Who are those stakeholders that are, are raising issues, making proposals for improvement, for example? What are people saying they'd like to see changed? There's quite some strong opposition from vested interests against the legal proposal for nature restoration. And we see the agriculture and forest sector as being very vocal. This is a pity because it's actually in the interest of farmers and forest owners to have resilient ecosystems so that they can continue to do their farming activity and their forest activity. And it's a pity that they are so defensive while the nature restoration law is not really creating any legal obligations for them directly. The targets are for the member states. It's the member states that will develop national restoration plans where they will clarify where and how they will restore. And this, of course, will be done in participation and in discussion with all the stakeholders that are involved, including farmers, forest owners, and also environmental uh, NGOs. We are a bit concerned about this opposition. Also in the European Parliament, which is, of course, the most transparent institution, so we can really follow what is happening there. And we see that certain conservative groups are using actually false facts. We should call them like nature restoration is bad for food security or nature restoration will jeopardize food security. And they use these false arguments to actively lobby against the proposal, while we all know that it's actually the other way around. If we don't tackle the climate crisis, if we don't tackle the nature crisis, this will be a big threat for food security. We see that in the parliament, many amendments and proposals are circulating 
to try to weaken the nature restoration law, to limit the scope of the nature restoration law by deleting some of the ecosystems, for instance, deleting the targets in relation to agricultural ecosystems or forest ecosystems, or trying to limit the scope for the restoration action. There are a few member states who are clearly not in favor of the nature restoration law. And I think Sweden was one of the first countries who developed their position on the nature restoration law, which is unfortunately quite negative. And this is, of course, concerning to us as they have the EU presidency for the moment and they are, I think, working to really get an agreement in June but we don't see that they are trying to aim for the most ambitious position when facilitating the discussions among the member states. But I'm also looking forward to hear what uh, Umberto might want to say about this. Right, exactly. So Umberto, you work for the European Commission. What are your observations on the discussions of this commission proposal? Okay, so let's go elements of uh, big debates. Um, Well, one first point I would like to raise is, you know, in many minds, when you speak about nature, you kind of speak of a nice to have, but not essential. For many people, let's say spending one euro in nature will sound like, well, aren't there better uses? But actually, as we show in our impact assessment of the nature restoration law, for each euro spent on nature, on average, you get a benefit of 8 euros. And for some ecosystems that can go as high as 38 euros per euro invested. Now, not all of this is, of course, money that you can put in the profit of a company. It's often, well, part of them are, but part are, let's say, public goods to which you should put then public money to bring them in. But let's say the perception on what it means to invest in nature is still far from the right perception. By another angle, I told you in the beginning, what's the main driver of biodiversity loss? Well, it's land use change and sea use change. So you can expect everything that is related to land use and sea use to be more at stake when we discuss nature restoration, if the perception wrongly is that either we have nature or you have a certain economic activity. And I've heard some very extraordinary statements like either you have more food or you have more nature. Either you have more fish or you have more nature, which couldn't be more wrong in the sense that you can only have more fish if you have more nature. You can only have more food and resilient food and food security if nature that provides that food is out there. You can only have more timber and more resilient forests to forest fires and to pest outbreaks if there's a healthy nature on forests. And this is feeding many of the debates around this. In some cases, out of misperception. In other cases, out of political display. There are some players that just don't want interference in their sector. So go away with your proposals on the restoration. We have also tabled recently this action plan for fisheries and marine ecosystems. If you promote more protected areas, and Sabine referred to this, it's very clear nowadays that in the sea, you don't have sea owners, you do have sea users. But it's very clear that if sea users can agree on refraining from capturing in certain zones, 
that can become nurseries. When fish get bigger, they lay more eggs. A fish that duplicates of size will put 10 times more eggs, not just a double, because of the proportion of volume versus size. Uh, there are another subset of arguments which I also find quite misleading, which is as if either you have renewable energy or you have nature, which is again wrong. First, we have room enough for everything we need if we do adequate maritime and land spatial planning. Second, you have many cases of win-wins where you can actually have solar panels that at the same time help the soil recover because they reduce insulation, or you can have wind farms that can bring in an artificial reef effect or a protection from other pressures, such as bottom trolling, that will allow restoration to kick in. In most of this, is a matter of perceptions or a display. Finally, I would say there are also some concerns expressed on what we call non-deterioration clauses, meaning that, of course, if you are saying that habitat X or Z should be restored, we should at the same time ensure that those that are in good condition, that kind of habitat does not deteriorate. Let me maybe finalize the reply to this to say, I'm very pleased to see a lot of the economic community, I mean the business community, coming more and more with strategies to become nature positive or to move to regenerative economy, regenerative agriculture, regenerative forestry. And all that seems to me to link so nicely with the word restoration. If you just perceive that by restoring, you are bringing back these values and services that these activities rely on. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. Umberto Delgado Rosa and Sabine Lehmans, thank you so much for joining us today at Green Deal, Big Deal. Thank you. Welcome. Bye-bye. So, Ricardo, you and I speak about the environment all the time in our work. Oftentimes, that's actually about rather technology-centered things like solar energy, electric vehicles, etc., But in today's episode, we actually got to speak about nature itself. So ecosystems, biodiversity, habitats, all that stuff. What did you find interesting about today? I thought it was really interesting to learn that the nature restoration law addresses three main aspects. So not just nature protection, nature restoration, but also people. You know, we often take nature for granted. And as Umberto said, that many people think or they believe nature is nice to have, but it's not essential. That it's basically a matter of perception and that, yeah, people are just not willing to spend money on nature protection or restoration. But as we've learned from Umberto today, that one euro of investment will actually get us eight euros of benefits. I mean, that's quite a lot. Yeah, I think a, a point that both of them made was that it's really not either or. You bring this up in the example that you just mentioned. Umberto started off with really emphasizing ecosystem services. And then Sabine mentioned that there's also this intrinsic value. But both of them mentioned these examples of restoring nature actually has beneficial effects for economic activity as well. And is really a type of insurance policy, so uh, a type of protection of resilience. Uh, you take the example of pollinators, for instance. And then another thing that I 
noticed this is really based on a history of, of a lack of success in this area. I mean, the biodiversity crisis has been going on and growing for quite a bit of time. And the nature restoration law, it's getting more serious. It's moving things from being voluntary to binding. It's moving from intentions to talking about targets. It's moving from no timelines to actually having timelines to meet and, and a ways of measuring and monitoring that success. So it's interesting to see that in this historical context. Yeah, I thought that was also really important because we know in EU policy or in probably most climate policy that without targets and setting timelines, these have the effect of guiding the member states or policymakers on how to, by when to implement the right policies. I was actually really happy to see or to learn that he made this point of how the biomental policymaking has changed and that now they're attached to a timeline. So, yeah. Yeah, I thought another interesting theme that came out also was the topic of coherence and its importance in policy. That's one thing that Sabine called for, more coherence. And then Umberto said, wait a second, you know, the European Green Deal is the EU's effort to, for more policy coherence. And so we're really seeing that shift and debate and the formation of what does that actually mean and how do we evolve towards a policy framework that is more coherent in supporting multiple sustainability goals at the same time. That also goes into the point that Umberto made about the spillovers. I mean, it's all interconnected and we're not just addressing nature itself, but also other sectors. For example, if we restore our seas and the waters and then because of that, we will have more fish that will have a major effect on the food system. He made a really valuable point with that. You know, for so long, environmental policy has been playing defense, trying to protect things from further loss in a, in a lot of contexts. Mm. And here we have um, a law that is explicitly about bringing nature back and acting as stewards in that sense. Umberto also mentioned this idea from various business stakeholders, etc., in thinking about how the human economy can be part of restoring and uh, regenerating nature. And the EU taxonomy, which we covered in a different episode, actually is trying to define that framework and those thresholds for where something becomes restorative and, and is definitely sustainable and where it is taking us back. Yes, that's right. Actually, I was also thinking of the EU taxonomy. Ricardo, as you know, we also do a webinar where we discuss Europe's green future with young people from all across Europe. Yeah, that's right. And we're doing one on green finance soon. That's right. And recently, I hosted one with Eva on how the EU plans to achieve net zero by 2050. So as a warm-up for you, I thought I'd play the short interview that I did with Malik Al-Jubai after he'd participated in that webinar. Cool. Sounds interesting. Let's hear it. So Malik, you participated in our webinar on the net zero transition. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What are you up to? Uh, well, uh, thank you so much, Aaron, for having me in this podcast episode. Currently, I'm in the final stages of completing my international master's in environmental sciences, policy and management at Lund University. 
And I'm actually working now in a joint thesis research where we aim to investigate the policy instrumentalization pathways of urban nature-based solutions in European cities. This is it at a glance. Yeah, so it's an area you already work in. What is your main interest in sustainability? To be honest, this is not an easy question. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, um, I must say that my attraction to sustainability is very much multifaceted. Like first and foremost, I believe that sustainability is an urgent issue that requires immediate attention. However, but what drew my initial attention to this field was the need for serious systematic shift and transition in our societies, like how we're actually doing stuff, like what is the business as usual. And I strongly believe that the interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary approaches are necessary to envision and solve uh, the complex problems we are facing today. For example, in terms of my background, I have education and engineering, which has given me a very unique perspective on the technical aspects of sustainability. But I also have worked in public policy and local development, which allowed me to see sustainability issues, if you want, from a governance and community perspective, and currently now promoting this kind of science into climate policy. And what attracted you to join our webinar on achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050? Well, um, this is not my first webinar. I've also attended the Farm to Fork webinar and it was super insightful, which actually motivated me to go forward and like, yes, um, always be up for exploring new perspectives and learning about what is the latest debates in our field. And I think this is exactly what is this podcast series is all about, right? Um, it's just giving young professionals a chance to share thoughts and ideas and to exchange what are the emerging topics happening at the moment. And what was your experience taking part in the webinar? So what were the main things you got out of it? Definitely. Actually, I mean, I'm coming from academia now. The hot topics of Green Deal is very much into what we're studying at the moment. Uh, but I actually really enjoyed listening to Claire and Matthew's contributions to the webinar. They actually both touched upon some really insightful and, and thought-provoking points. I also like found it fascinating to hear about the role of grassroots movements in pushing the Green Deal agenda. It's nothing that happened in 2019 out of nothing. It was really a series of important milestones happening at the grassroots level, but also at the institutional level. Yeah, overall, it was really a very pleasant experience. And I'm excited to join the next one, actually. Great. We'll hope to see you there. Perfecto. So that's all for episode 10 of our podcast. We hope today's episode helped you get a better understanding of the EU proposal to restore nature and protect biodiversity. We also welcome you to join our webinar series. You can learn more about it and sign up for upcoming webinars on our website, greendealbigdeal.eu. And to be notified about upcoming webinars and podcast episodes, you can follow our Instagram channel at greendealbigdeal. You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Deezer, as well as on YouTube. Please subscribe to the podcast to find the new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety, and Consumer Protection. The ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. The podcast is produced by Chiara Mazzetti, Eva Ivaszczuk and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Ebley, graphic and web design by Jennifer Rahn. Special thanks to Anna Henze-Henschel, 
Liliane Sala, Nora Kögel, Camilla Bausch und Michael Lorenz.